you'd open your Bibles to Galatians, we will continue our series through this wonderful book. Galatians, we'll be reading chapter 3, verse 26 through chapter 4, verse 7. The more I keep reading and studying this book, the more excited I get. Uh, There's just so much in here and and just some profound, life-changing truths about Christ and about uh, what that means to us in our life. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you no longer slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When we get to uh, Chuck and Peggy Von Hagen, many of you have been praying for their adoption process. And what a lengthy process it can be. When you go through an adoption process, one of the most challenging things those persons face is how other people talk to them. And some of the questions they ask. One such question, oh, that's nice. Do you, have children, do you also have children of your own? Don't say that to an adoptive parent. Because I know when I was asked that, I wanted to say, I got a secret for you. Come close. He is ours. Don't ask that. There's another question with a similar view of adoption that someone would say, I don't know if I could ever feel the same about an adopted child like a biological child. And there it is again, making that distinction. I guarantee the affection. Cindy and I feel for our son who we adopted is absolutely no different from our affections for our children we had naturally. These phrases, these myths, these misconceptions about adoption are not just annoyances to parents who've been through that process. They're symptoms of something deeper, I believe. They show how little we understand what it means to be a part of God's family. Even our Infatuation with the biological and adopted titles and labels and the distinction between the two shows a tendency to qualify children into categories based and grouped around flesh and blood. And as long as that's the case, we're going to struggle with a gospel that tells us of a story of spiritual and transracial adoption that changes the lives of each of us for all of eternity. We are adopted into the family of God. 
And the implications of this are huge. Are huge. And as Paul goes into this teaching about what it means to be adopted, we, are, we almost transition from one beautiful doctrine to another. I talked about a couple of weeks ago about those four images of salvation that the Scriptures put forth. We talked about redemption, which takes us as this image of a marketplace. And justification, which takes us into the courtroom. We talked about uh, propitiation, which takes us to the altar and into the temple. And the fourth image is what Paul's teaching on hits on here. It's that image of reconciliation, the images of a home. Paul's taking us to this image of a home. And if we want to understand who a Christian is, and why being Christian is a privilege, we need to appreciate divine adoption. Well, it's helpful to recall, kind of catch us up a little bit, what Paul's already talked to us about. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In other words, God's pleasure, God's favor towards us is not based on our performance, but on His performance, upon His grace. It's not our working that has earned us anything, whether it be in salvation or sanctification. We're not working for God's pleasure, that's legalism. God's pleasure in us is based upon Christ's work for us. And in Galatians 3, Paul covers 2,000 years, we talked about last year, last week, of Old Testament history. From Abraham, we talked about the, the hill of Abraham, the hill of Moses, which all led to the majestic mountain of Christ, who's the climax of all history. All of its centers are on Christ. The promise given to Abraham, the law was given to Moses, but both pointed to Jesus. And in Galatians 1-3, through 3, Paul hammered home and emphasized, for obvious reasons, the doctrine of justification. We define that doctrine as a gracious act of God by which he declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. By grace, through faith, we've been made right before God the Judge. We can't, cannot overemphasize the significance of that. But the question on the table, it could be asked, is could we be justified without the privileges of adoption into His family? Could Christ have forgiven us, given us the right legal standing, without making us His children? It's an important question. You see, justification has the right to do with our standing before God's law. But in Galatians 4, we're introduced to something remarkable called the doctrine of adoption. We could define this doctrine of adoption this way. It's being placed into God's family as sons and daughters, emphasizing the believer's new position in Christ. You see, adoption has to do with our relationship with God. In justification, by grace through faith, we're made right before God the judge. In adoption, by grace through faith, we're loved by God as the Father. Not as the judge. Adoption takes us into the home. And it talks about God as our Father. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, which is one of the top ten books, I highly recommend it, maybe top five I've ever read. 
He says this, to be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Whether you agree with that or not, his point is this doctrine of adoption is so significant, we can't forget it. Seems like we don't talk about it enough, of what it means to be adopted by God. And in Galatians 3, those verses we read, verse 26 through 29, Paul talked about this sense of a new identity we have before God. Verse 26 There's a public building in Washington, D.C., which has written on the walls. So it always strikes me as interesting in a public place. For you are all sons of God. And the verse ends there. It's leaving out the most important part of the verse. (laughs) We're not all sons of God unless we've come through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the verse says. You are all sons of God through faith. In Christ Jesus. Not a general, everyone's a child of God. That's not at all what that's saying. Saying the only only way to become a child of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. But to all received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. You might want to underline verse 26. That's a significant verse. It's okay to underline your Bible, by the way. That's fine. God won't strike you. And then he goes into chapter 4, verse 1 through 2, and there's a purposeful use of the word sons. It's not an attempt to be chauvinistic, because elsewhere God refers to people, his people as sons and daughters. It's a context, and it's, it's written in the context of the culture. You see, culture at this time had that when a boy was a young man, as a boy, he was considered like a servant in regard to his inheritance. While it may have been his, he was still under guardians and trustees wasn't really able to enjoy it to its fullest. Even though he was an heir in the family, he'd basically be treated as a servant. But there was at a certain age that his individual status would change and he'd take on the responsibilities of manhood. In other words, he'd officially pass from being a child, like a servant, to a son. And Paul does not speak of sons and daughters in this illustration because the inheritance back in this day, in this culture, was, rece- was reserved for sons. You see, verse 28 is telling us the full rights of sons, including the full inheritance, are granted to all who belong to Christ, regardless of whether they're male or female. God sent His Son, so we might have a new identity. And coming to Christ changes everything. It changes who we are. And look at verse 27 in chapter 3. He talks about about this identity change. For all of you who are baptized into Christ. It's a picture of immersion into the life of Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Paul said earlier. It's what water baptism symbolizes and signifies, that we've been baptized into Christ. Verse 27 continues to talk about this identity change. You have been clothed yourselves with Christ. Imagery of one of putting on a garment. Putting on Christ like a garment. Your old self in Adam is removed and discarded when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. When you trusted in Christ, you got a new wardrobe. 
We're now dressed up in Jesus. That's how we're supposed to look like to our world. Because we've been clothed with Christ. Once again, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. We have a new identity. Verse 28 goes on to say we've been united in Christ. And Paul lists these barriers that separate people in the first century, surely today. Ethnic, social, gender barriers. We're united in Christ. And Paul's not saying that when you come to Jesus, you lose your distinctions. What Paul is saying is that these barriers no longer divide us. All of us need grace. All of us find it in Christ alone through whom we've all become sons of God. So we're united in Christ. Union with Christ automatically establishes communion with other believers. In verse 29, he then says, And if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see here, Paul takes this unity and ties it to the list of Old Testament saints. I love this. In other words, we share. We all belong to Christ. Abraham, Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel. And the list goes on and on. Hebrews 11, you were supposed to read that recently. Hopefully you did. You and I belong to Christ. We're acceptable to God. We belong to Him. We are His children. And because we've been adopted, we live with a new identity before God. I saw this in a store some time ago. There was a, a mom with a couple kids, and if you're a mother and, I, and you're trying to shop with kids, I pray for you. <laughs> These young kids were all over the place, up and down the aisles. And, and after a while, the one kid turned the corner and the mom kind of lost sight and the child came back around the corner with, a, with another adult behind and, and, and said to the mom, does this child belong to you? And the mom probably might have hesitated a little longer than you would normally, but uh, she owned up to it and said, yeah, uh, the child belongs to me. And I wonder often if, if we're not kind of like that. We're running all over, doing our own thing, making a mess of life, and uh, God might look at us and hesitate, but he says, no, that's my child. They belong to me. What a great privilege that is. We belong to Christ. So we have a new identity. But we also enjoy a new intimacy with God. In chapter 4, verse 3 through 7, this is a great blessing. We're told in verse 6 of chapter 4 that the Spirit transforms not only our identity, but also our intimacy with God. Now remember the context again, what Paul's been developing. Paul's built the case that we were once held captive by God's law apart from Christ. We were once held as prisoners by the law, locked up in our sin. The commands of God condemned us. They showed us that we were a sinner in need of a Savior. They showed us we couldn't keep them. Verse verse 3 of chapter 4 says we were held captive by the law. But now, everything's changed. Though we were once imprisoned by the law of God, which He gave us as a result of sin, now we're captivated by His love. And it's never more clearly seen than when we consider adoption. Look at verse 4. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son born of a woman, born under the law. And what is it about God sending His Son that makes it possible for us to be adopted as His sons? 
Well, maybe a contemporary analogy of adoption would help here. I want you to consider the following conditions that must be met if you want to adopt a child today. It certainly is a nice analogy. One is, adoption requires that someone come at the right time. I mean, when you adopt from another country, especially, you're not on your timetable. And right now, unfortunately, the Von Hagens are experiencing the great frustration of having to be in another country's timetable. But as far as that country is concerned, they're coming at a certain time. But as a Christian, we realize it's God's time. And so when adoption comes, we need someone to come at the right time. We read in verse 4, when the fullness of time came. You think it's easy to connect an orphan with a willing parent. You would think it would be. You have a family, you have a child needs a home, let's bring them together. Pray for them and, and let them go. It's not that easy, trust me. And timing is such a key component. You see, in the same way, God sending His Son to earth was not an accident. God didn't all of a sudden experience something some 2,000 years ago and say, oh my goodness, I didn't see this one coming. <laughs> I, I, we bet, Jesus, you better hop down there right away. No. It was in the fullness of time. It was at the right time. When God sent His Son, He came at the right time. He came at the right time theologically. Prophecy had been fulfilled. It was a culmination of a plan set forth before the world even created. Culturally, the Greek language had become common and practically universal, thus would allowing the gospel to spread. It was the right time politically. It was easier to take the gospel of four corners. You see, adoption requires someone comes at the right time. And this might be a good way to just remind you that Jesus is coming back at just the right time. And that we look forward to when our King comes. You see, adoption requires someone comes at the right time. Adoption also requires someone who possesses the right qualifications. If you go down the adoptive process, you're going to find out they have criteria. When we began the process, we, we didn't know what we were doing, so we called these different agencies, and a couple of them said, you don't even make near enough money. So I threw that one out the door. And, uh, and they also have age criteria, and you need to live in a certain home, and they come and investigate your home, and they want to make sure criteria of how you raise your parent or raise your children. And so there's all kinds of qualifications they look at through screenings, fingerprint tests, background status, home studies in order to fit the qualifications in a much deeper way. Adoption into God's family requires the right qualifications, and that's when we consider the work of Christ. The work of the Son. Boy, I wish we could dig deeper and longer. Time won't allow us, but three remarkable things about qualifications. Jesus is fully divine. God did not create His Son. He sent His Son. Verse 4, born of a woman, indicating He's fully human. The Son was sent. The baby was born. Fully divine, fully human, and fully righteous. If Jesus was not completely righteous, if he did not live a sinless life, he offered no hope to unrighteous people. But he is qualified, being fully divine, fully human, and perfectly righteous. That's the work of the Son. That's how we can be adopted. 
We also read about the work of the Spirit. If you look at verse 4 and 6, they're parallels. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son. And so we have the work of the Spirit. The Spirit leads us to something. Leads us to call out, Abba, Father. And this word crying in verse 6 refers to a deep and profound passion and feeling. As we experience the work of the Spirit, we feel a remarkable reality of being near to God. The gifts of the Son are enjoyed as you and I look to the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit of God comes into us, brings us assurance of our sonship, so we may speak to God. Remarkable. Uh, Flip back to Romans 8. Just to kind of reiterate the point, it isn't the only place Paul makes this point. Romans 8, verse 15 and 16. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, it's when we hear the news that we didn't expect. It's when we hear the diagnosis that blindsided us. It's during those times, especially, when circumstances come upon us. It's those times we cry out, Abba. Abba, Father. And we do that through the Spirit. And no matter what the world brings, you and I have nothing to fear. Because we've received the spirit of sonship. It leads us to cry out, Abba, Father. Oftentimes when our children are hurt or afraid, they cry out, Dad, Dad. They're frantic or even run and come jump at you. It's kind of that picture that we have a Heavenly Father that we can cry out. And probably again, more, probably more evident when we hit those times where we're so totally perplexed we don't know what to do. And so adoption requires someone comes at the right time. Adoption requires someone has the right qualifications. Adoption also requires someone who has the right resolve. Don't adopt accidentally. You adopt purposefully. It's certainly an important, important requirement. As parents take the initiative to seek out and adopt a child, so it was God's pleasure and will before the creation of the world to set His affections on you and on me. But there's a big difference between contemporary adoption and biblical adoption. You see, earthly adoption often is glamorized. It's glamorized in the sense that there are sweet, innocent, precious children all over the world waiting to be adopted. This is true. But when we look at spiritual adoption, we need to look at Ephesians 2, which says people who are adopted are children of wrath, gratifying a sinful nature. In other words, we're not innocent. Far from it. We're guilty. We're not good prospects for adoption by God. But He does. I came across this quote from Russell Moore, himself an adoptive parent. And he makes a following analogy that's certainly worthy of our consideration. He says, imagine for a moment that you're adopting a child 
And as you meet with the social worker in the last stage of the process, you're told that this 12-year-old has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He persists in burning things, attempting repeatedly to skin animals alive. He acts out sexually, the social worker says, although you're not sure all that that means. She continues with a little family history. This boy's father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather all had histories of violence, ranging from spousal abuse to serial murder. Each of them ended their own lives. Think for a minute. Would you want this child? If you did adopt him, wouldn't you watch nervously as he played with other children? Would you watch him nervously as he looked at the knife on the kitchen table? And then Moore identifies the potentially problematic 12-year-old, and he says, he's you, and he's me. That's what the gospel is telling us. And praise God, although there was nothing in us, nothing, to draw us to, uh, to God to us, God determined to redeem us. And if that sounds like an exaggeration, look at the cross. Look at the picture of God's wrath against sin. That's no minor offense. So God sent His Son so you and I could have positions as sons and daughters in His family. Praise God for His resolve. What are those privileges of sonship? This is so sweet. This text is so rich on so many levels. Again, justification, we're right before the judge. Adoption, we're declared to be in a position as a child. You see, that's not all, though. God sent His Son so we might enjoy position of sons and thus enjoy privilege, privileges of sonship. Let verse 6 and 7 wash over you. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore... Therefore, we need to ask, what's it there for? You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. David, my son, knows that I'm his father. That I'm his dad. Why? How does he know that? Does he know that because of what we did over eight years ago to get him? It's not what he thinks about. How does he know today that I'm his dad? He knows the love because I show him today. You see, the love I show him, hanging with him, shooting hoops with him, beating him in horse, just kidding, watching football, that's when he knows I'm his dad. He won't be thinking about eight years ago. He'll be thinking about what's happening at the moment. And don't miss this. David's son, David's status as my son is based on what happened eight years ago as a judge declared in Ethiopia that he's our son. But his life and his experience as my son is based on what's happening today. You see, in the same way with God, your status, my status before God is based on what happened at the moment of justification when we were declared right with God. We're eternally right before God based on the righteousness of Christ. However, we know that we are sons more, not by what happened when we trusted Christ, but on the day-to-day, moment-by-moment walk with God. That's when we know most fully that we're God's son and God's daughter and His children. We know we're sons and daughters, that He's our Father based on the affection and love that He showers on us at every single moment. 
the affection, the privileges of being a son we enjoy, not when we pray to prayer, but today we enjoy the privileges of sonship. When we wake up each morning, when we walk with him, we enjoy what it means to be a child of God. Each day as we cry out, Abba, Father, in our lives, the Spirit does His work assuring us we're God's children. Do you have intimacy with God? What's your relationship with God like? Is your relationship or lack thereof more like He's just a distant deity out there and He's not interested in me? If that's your perspective, then you probably haven't come to faith in Christ because Christ came so you could draw near to God and have an intimate relationship with God. And when you have an intimate relationship with, with God, you no longer live as a slave, but as a child. Much different. Much closer. Slaves don't live with guarantees, but sons do. Children do. And you and I are guaranteed an inheritance. We need to wrap this up. We have as adopted children three, at least three things, but these are enough to ponder for the, for the moment. We have an eternal father. Not only are you a son or you a daughter, but you're a son and daughter forever. We have an eternal father. We belong to him. And when we run around down the supermarket aisle and go to the corner and lose our way, we don't have a father who says, I'm done with you. We have an eternal father that welcomes us back and says, you're mine forever. Forever. You and I have an eternal father. A heavenly father. God sets his affection on you as his child. Why did we go get David? We wanted him in our family. Why did God come down to earth? Why did the God of the universe come down to earth? Because he wanted you in his family. You and I have an eternal father as those in Christ. We have an eternal family. You see, we're all adopted. Together we share in a, glor- a glorious hope. A glorious inheritance. And this family is a great family. One you're going to want to be adopted into if you're not already. There's none greater. We're all one in Christ. And I get so sick and tired of hearing all the differences and how horrible this other Christians are. We're one, man. We have eternal family. We're part of something so much greater than us and our opinions and our perspectives. We have an eternal father as an inheritance. We have an eternal family. And we have an eternal home. I thought of Dave and Kathy this week. As they lost, Dave lost his mother. I can't think of a more powerful truth right now that's got to be blessing their spirit than moms in an eternal home. And if you've lost someone, a loved one in Christ, and you stood beside the gravesite, I'm sure as a Christian that thought went through your mind. Not only are they in a better place, but they're in an eternal place. They have an eternal home. And no one's going to come into the Miklaus home and take my child from me. They're in my home for good. Sometimes whether they like it or not. But they're in my home for good. The reality scripture teaches us is that when we have an eternal father, we have an eternal family, we also have an eternal home, and every day is one day closer to experiencing, in a sense, the culmination of our inheritance, the joy of that home. Oh, it's good to be God's child. It's good to be his son. It's good to be his daughter. 
I hope you revel in that. And as sons and daughters, we have an eternal father, an eternal family, and an eternal home. As you process this all, I suspect across the room there's some who've never experienced intimacy with God. What I'm talking about right now is foreign to you. You don't know what it is to be able to call upon God as your Father and to enjoy that intimacy. I want you to know that God sent His Son to forgive you of your sins so you might become His child. So you could enjoy the intimate relationship that religion never could offer you. But I also recognize some of you are seated here who maybe have trusted Christ. And you need the Spirit to give you assurance this morning. It's all going to be okay. That you do have an eternal Father. You're part of an eternal family. You don't walk alone. And you have an eternal home that awaits you. You're never alone. And so you and I can cry out forever. Not to a distant deity. We can cry out, Abba, Father. And so let's do that right now. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come this morning not with our heads held high as if we deserve this. We come humbly. But we come rejoicing to be a son and daughter of the God of this universe. If we can't rejoice in that, we can't rejoice in anything. Lord, we celebrated communion because it reminded us that the only way any of this is possible to become a son or daughter is because of the great sacrifice in you sending your son. Might we never forget it. Might we never forget our new status, our new identity in you. But God, my prayer specifically is for our moment-by-moment, day-by-day walk with you. I pray for a greater awareness of who we are in you. And I pray as a result, God, we would begin to approach you as you really are, as our Father. And even more personal, our Abba, Father. Lord, might we not approach you as some flippant, distant deity. Might we understand more and more how deeply loved we are. Might we understand more and more what it means that you've set your affections upon us. And you call us close, not as a servant, not as a slave, but as a son. And God, when we're assaulted by this world or assaulted by our enemy, I pray with a great childlike faith we'd run to you and cry out, Abba, Father, and find that assurance and find that rest, find that joy and that peace there is in being your child. Oh God, thank you for this word this morning we so desperately need. We love you. We praise you this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
Let's stand and worship our Father.
if this morning um, some questions have been raised in your mind about what it means to have a personal relationship with Christ, um, grab me this morning or call me during the week or at any time. Uh, hunt me down, please. I'd love to talk more with you and, and help you maybe as you begin that journey. Father, I pray for these precious people. I pray that your love would wash over them. I pray that your peace would wash over them. And I pray they'd enjoy the fellowship of the Holy Spirit this day and forever. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week, everybody.